Let's open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Let's pray. Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, we again come before thee and uh, are so thankful for this privilege we have to live in a free country where we are able to assemble together with sisters in Christ for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through the study of your word. And we thank you for this privilege that we have to come before you in prayer. We confess, Father, that we often have failed to take advantage of this great privilege of prayer. Sometimes lives, our lives get so busy and we just shoot up arrow prayers. And we often find ourselves just moving in our own strength and energy, thinking we're able to handle affairs of our lives without your help. But this is uh, often why we are discouraged and powerless and sometimes even feel defeated and far from you. So, Lord, may we remember that in our discouragement and defeat and confusion, that's when we need you more than ever. As Daniel, we need to be before you on our knees because in prayer, we find that fellowship we so badly need with you and, and the comfort that peace that passes all understanding that we're looking for and living in this chaotic world. We ask that we might be more characterized by prayer than ever before as we consider this great man of Scripture, this extraordinary man, Daniel, who received the most incredible answers from you because of his dedicated, fervent, effectual prayer life. So encourage us this morning to sense the great need for your help and for your blessings, which do come to us through prayer. And now we ask for your blessing upon this next hour of study. And as we consider this chapter, we ask that you will enlighten us and instruct us through the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. For it is in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. The title for this 35th lesson in our Life of Christ study is Spiritual Warfare. You got your armor on? And we're going to be looking at Daniel 1 all the way through 11.1, Daniel 10.1 to 11.1. You know, chapter divisions are not inspired. So in this case, it really should probably spill over into the first verse of chapter 11. So that's where I'm making the division. The 10th chapter of Daniel serves as the introduction to the fourth and final directly God-given, directly given to Daniel vision. I didn't say that right at all, did I? <laughs> yeah, I'm having fun. I'm looking at the traffic out there. Um, this is the fourth God-given, and I can't really say vision. Now, he has a vision in chapter 10, but I really should say the fourth directly given revelation because what he receives in chapter 11 is a prophetic revelation, a very long one. But chapter 10 is the introduction to that fourth revelation from God. Now, if you remember back, the first directly given vision uh, revelation was in a vision form, dream. He had a dream, but in the dream, there was a lot of visions. And remember, they were about those four great beasts that came up out of the, the stirred up great sea. That was back in chapter 7, and the year was 553 B.C., 553 years before Christ was born. And who was king? Belshazzar. Remember him, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, that arrogant young fella who had his doom the night of the handwriting on the wall. So it was the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. That was the first 
directly given vision of Daniel. Then the second one we found, we discussed in chapter 8. It too was in a vision form, and it was of a ram and an he-goat, and what else? A little horn, who we discussed quite a bit. That was chapter 8, and the year was 551 B.C., and Belshazzar was still king. It was the third year of his reign. The third visit that Daniel had from heaven was while he was awake. He was actually still on his knees praying when Gabriel touched him and gave him the next revelation, which was the great 70 weeks prophecy. What year was that? Well, that was the year 538, roughly 539, 538 B.C. It was now we had made the transition from the Babylonian kingdom to the Medo-Persian kingdom. They had taken over, and so it was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. He was king of Babylon. He's the one who threw Daniel into the lion's den that very first year of his reign. So those were the first three. And now the fourth final revelation, which is, by the way, the longest. It takes up three chapters, 10, 11, and 12. So it's the longest revelation, and it is the most detailed. It occurred in 536 B.C. It is now the third year of the reign of Cyrus. Remember Cyrus? He is the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian Empire. But by this time, Darius the Mede has died. He only reigned for about one year. He died, and then Cyrus became also not only the emperor of the whole empire, but he became the king of Babylon. So this is his third year, Cyrus's third year of reigning. And how old do you think Daniel is by now? Right. He's probably close to 90, close to 90 years of age. So chapter 10, which is the subject of this lesson, is the prelude to this final vision. Chapter 11 gives us really the prophecies of this final vision, and there are many of them. And then chapter 12 gives us the prologue to the final vision. Now, this last prophetic vision, I call it a vision, but it's really not. It's because he's wide awake when he receives it. Um, It's a revelation, but we're going to call it a vision. It sweeps over almost the same period of time as the prophecies that we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, which is from the time of Daniel all the way to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 11... We are going to find more details of that time that Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. The 70th week is the seven years of the tribulation on earth. All right, the last three and a half are called the Great Tribulation. Well, in chapter 11, we're going to find out more details, more information about those final three and a half years than from any prophecy that we have yet looked at. So you can be sure, don't worry about it, I'll get rid of it in a minute. You can be sure that we will be talking a lot about, guess who, again, the Antichrist, right? A lot of information um, about him. Much of this last revelation from where we stand in history has already been fulfilled Actually, verses 1 to 35 have already been fulfilled. 
history past. But then when you get to verse 36, guess what? Between 35 and 36 is a big gap of time. We're living in that gap, the church age. But from 36 to the end of the book, verse 45, is about that last seven-year period of time, the, the tribulation. So it's yet unfulfilled. <clears throat> now, the accuracy of the prophecies that have already been fulfilled in the first 35 verses, the prophecies, and there's so many of them, you're just, your heads are going to swim as we race through history, and you'll see all these little details that you read about, and you're like, what is that talking about? What's that talking about? Cleopatra's even in there. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Um, we, you know, God was silent from heaven for 400 years between the, the revelation he gave to Malachi and then the book of Matthew. 400 years called intertestamental period. But he actually already had told the Jews what would happen in those 400 years. And that's what we find in, in Daniel chapter 11. Fascinating. So God didn't miss out on telling us anything, really, from the very beginning to the end. It's amazing. But anyway, the, the, the accuracy of the prophecies in chapter 11 that have already been fulfilled are so precise it's going to blow you away. It's, they're just so accurate. Well, it won't because we know God is God and he can tell the end from the beginning and all that. And the, Wasn't it amazing that he predicted the very day Jesus would officially present himself as Messiah in Daniel's prophecy? And it was that very day, Palm Sunday. I mean, so, you know, we're used to that for God. It's a piece of cake to tell the future and tell all these details. Uh, but as we read them, it's so amazing. And so because it is, the critics have put a great deal of effort in trying to avoid admitting divine inspiration. So their primary claim, as we've discussed in the past, is that the whole thing, the whole book, was written by a forgery Jew who pretended to be Daniel, which is, doesn't make sense because there would have been no Daniel if there wasn't the real Daniel. But you know. So he's a pretend Daniel who lived after the events that, of the prophecies took place. You know, so they move up the date from the 600 B.C. date that it really took place, that was written in, to 200 B.C. And they say all he did was look back on time and write about it, pretending that he was telling the future. However, uh, we know the truth. The truth is that the authentic Daniel, the real Daniel, did write this book, and he wrote it from the 6th century, and when he wrote it, everything was yet future. And we've given you a lot of evidences for believing that, and we'll talk about some more today. So, as we're going to look at this um, chapter, I've divided it into two parts. We're going to look, first of all, at the setting, and then the strengthening Daniel needs to be strengthened. Poor guy, 90 years old, and he keeps passing out. He just is just too more than his little heart can take. So you're going to see this chapter is about him falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up. Um, so we're going to look about at the setting and the strengthening. And as we look at the setting, which is in verses 1 to 4, I've divided that into three subdivisions. We're going to talk, first of all, about Daniel's concern. Now, again, we find Daniel praying fasting and praying. What is he praying about this time? What is his big concern? So we're going to look at Daniel's concern. Then we're going to look at Daniel's Christophany. That's where he does get a vision. He gets a vision of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And it just does him in. 
You know, a Christophany is, a, or you could call it a theophany. And the Lord Jesus, before he became man, before he was incarnated, he did appear throughout the Old Testament to different people. Well, Daniel is one of them here. And then we're going to look at Daniel's collapse, because as soon as he has that Christophany appearance, he collapses. So that's where we're going. Let's begin with Daniel's concern, verses 1 to 4. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. A thing. That's actually the Hebrew word for a message or a communication. It was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing was true. But the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, pause, stop. I'm going to stop right there because then we get into the Christophany, all right? So I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence just to set the setting for you because that's what Daniel does here in these first four verses, setting. Notice that he interjected his old Babylonian name. What was his old Babylonian name? Belteshazzar, not Belshazzar, he was that bad king, but his was Belteshazzar, which in Babylonian meant Baal, protect his life. Uh, He seems, why did he do this? Well, he seems to be stressing the fact that he is the same person, even though he's now 90 years old, he's the same person as that young teen whose Hebrew name, God is my judge, that's what Daniel means, God is my judge, The same boy who had his name changed to Belteshazzar. He's one and the same person. You know, they knew the critics would say, oh, this isn't really Daniel. Yes, he's saying, yes, it's me from the beginning to the end. This whole book is me, Daniel, Belteshazzar. Well, from the time setting given in verse 1, we know that approximately two years have now passed since Daniel was given the great 70 weeks prophecy. So if you want to write between chapter 9, that little white space, and chapter 10, two years have gone by. This is now 536 BC. And by this time, as I said, Cyrus is not only the uh, emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, he's also king of Babylon because Darius has died. And Cyrus, by now, has issued a decree which would allow, which allowed the Jews to return to their land. He has issued that decree. So God had done what he had said he would do. He released his people after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, just as he had said he would do through Jeremiah, right? And he had raised up a man named Cyrus to be his servant to allow, to write that decree, to allow the Jews to return to their land after 70 years. And who predicted that Cyrus would be the man? Well, God did through Isaiah. You find it in Isaiah. And that prediction was 150 years before Cyrus was even born. The the Jews weren't even in captivity when God said that. So he had kept his word, hadn't he? He had kept his word, and they were now allowed to go back. They weren't prisoners, captives, slaves anymore. 
Sadly, however, the vast majority of the Jewish people were still in Babylon. This is two years later after the decree. Most of the people are still there, and they're giving little indication of any desire to return to Judah. Ezra, Ezra was a priest who did go back, and he tells us that only 42,360 people, plus their men servants and maid servants, so they were doing pretty good if they had servants, right? They were servants, and they had servants. I don't know how that worked, but anyway, um, less than 50,000 people went back. That was a very small percentage of the total Jewish population in Babylon because they really thrived in Babylon. They grew and multiplied. You know, if you read Psalm 137, it's a sad psalm. You know, that's the psalm after the Jews have been taken captive and they're in Babylon and they're weeping and they, they, they said they have no song in their heart and what do they do with their harps? We've hung, we hung our harps on the willow trees and, and they ask us to sing some of those lively Jewish songs that you people sing. We can't sing them because we have no joy at all. And they say that they will never, they promise we'll never forget Jerusalem ever, ever, ever. And then they promise in that psalm that they will never make anything else their chief joy but Jerusalem. And yet, less than 50,000 of them returned when provided the opportunity. Why is that? Well, it's because many of the elderly, those who had the heartache that we read about in Psalm 137, had died. I mean, Daniel's 90, right? Uh, There aren't many living that had gone with Daniel. Um, either, Either they had died or they're just too old to have made that long trip back to Judah because from Babylon to Jerusalem was about a 1,000 miles, and you know that would probably kill them off, a long, difficult trip. And the younger people had never known another home than Babylon, and there was was not a lot of enthusiasm among them to leave lives with which they had become very familiar, only lives they'd ever known. They were familiar with those lives there, and they were comfortable. Many of them had become enmeshed in the Babylonian society and had even become rather prosperous as merchants. You know, the the Jewish people are known for being good accountants and good lawyers and good, good with money and good with sales, right? They are. They're just something special. And so they became prosperous. And they did, they did not long for a city and a country that they either could not remember or had never even seen. Plus, it would be risky for them to leave the comforts of Babylon to try to establish themselves in a place that was little more than desolate ruins. And they were too involved. They were too satisfied with their surroundings and with their lifestyles to care about the promised land. Isn't it amazing when I think about how it only takes one generation to stop caring about the things that the, the older generation. You know, one gener- we're one generation away from the church, just and except God, you know, won't allow that. But um, it's just amazing how quickly a society can go down. And so they don't really care about the promised land, you know, and they don't really care about rebuilding a temple. They had, this is when synagogues developed, was when they were in Babylon. So they all had their own local little synagogues. They were happy worshiping God in the synagogues who wanted to kill a bunch of animals and slit their throats and all that anyway. So they were, they were okay with not having a, a temple. 
And that, besides, that would entail a lot of hard work before they would ever be as comfortable as they were in Babylon. So you get it? You're following it? So this is why Daniel set aside time to pray and to fast. I'm sure he put on his sackcloth again and his ashes. His heart was heavy. He tells us in verse 2 that he was mourning. He was grieved that more of his people had not returned. So he likely was praying. We, We don't know what his prayer was, but he was probably praying that God would touch the hearts of many Jews to pack up and separate themselves from pagan Babylon and help, you know, go to Judah and help in the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple and to repopulate the desolate land there. A lot depended on that faithful, the small number, a faithful remnant, you know, that did return. A lot depended on them, didn't it? What depended on them? Well, Judaism, the faith and the true God, Jehovah God, Christianity depended on them because if God was going to fulfill his promise to send the Messiah, it had to be just as he said in the land from Bethlehem, Ephraim. Um, and also the Bible, the Bible, our, the written word depended on them. If, if no one had gone back and if everybody had, all the Jews had just stayed in Babylon, what would have eventually happened? they would have intermingled with the eastern people and they would have lost their identity as a separate people so a lot depended on that handful of people so um so daniel would have been praying for more to go back more jews to go back as a government official also in the court of the medo persian empire remember he was one of three presidents he would have heard the reports that were coming back from jerusalem And he would have heard of the mess that met the eyes of those who did return under Zerubbabel. Don't you love that name? Always makes me think of bubblegum or something, Zerubbabel. (laughs) Um, But Zerubbabel, you know, Zerubbabel was in the direct kingly line. He was a descendant of the kings. He would have been the king in, uh, in, in Judah. But he went back and he was governor. Why wasn't he made king? Ah, remember that Jeconian curse? Remember that? That no king could ever rule after Jeconiah. None of his descendants would ever rule as king. Ah, but there is one who could because he circumvented the Jeconian curse because his father was not his blood father. It was his stepfather. Yet he was still related to uh, David by blood because of his mother. And that was Jesus, the only one who could ever, can. There's never been a king in Israel since they were carried off to Babylon. Do you know that? Never, never. Zerubbabel could have been. If you look in the genealogical record of Jesus, Zerubbabel is one of his ancestors. But anyway, he was a good guy, and he went back, and he was the governor. And with him went the high priest Joshua, another good guy. Um, so Daniel would have been praying, uh, you know, for more people to to join them but he would have heard about the mess that met their eyes when they got there do you know that it took them just seven months i mean just it took them seven months to just clean up the the mess on the temple floor not even the city can you imagine how long it would take to pick up the mess in the city but just you know solomon's temple was massive seven months just to pick up all the rubble left from the, you know, what Nebuchadnezzar did to it. 
And Daniel would have heard about all the opposition and the mockery and the scorn and the hatred and the harassment that was going on as they're trying to clean up and do everything. And that was coming from the local citizens. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took three exiles of Jews, he left the poorest of the poor in the land to farm the land, etc. And um, they eventually, well, they intermarried with Gentile people who the Assyrians had brought into the country. And so when they intermingled, they became known as the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. And when they saw these Jews come back and they were going to restore the temple, they said, well, we'll help you. Somehow or another, the Jews didn't want their help. You guys are half-breeds. We don't want you helping us. And so that made, made the Samaritans mad, and so they harassed them. And it was just, they were having troubles, okay? A lot of, and then they were having internal strife among themselves. You know, they had external strife and internal strife, and it was just a mess, and Daniel heard all about this. So the once great enthusiasm to rebuild the temple quickly waned. Life was just too difficult in this barren and desolated land for these people. They were living with their families in the scantiest of shelters and with very little provision, you know, no protection and and meager provision. So they were just too concerned with their own homes and with their own struggles for daily living um, to bother you. They lost their zeal and they lost their energy when it came to rebuilding God's house. Haggai 1 9, I think it is, says, uh, You're running to your own homes. You know, you're more concerned about building your own shelters, and you can identify with that, right? You have children and a wife, and so you're more concerned about building your own little houses than you are about rebuilding God's house. They were reprimanded for that. But finally, the, the, the work came to a halt altogether, so that by the time of this prayer of Daniel, two years after Cyrus issued the decree, allowing them to return, the only thing that had been accomplished was that they had laid the foundation for the temple. That was it, two years later. So hearing the reports of this negative news concerning his homeland, what was Daniel's response? What you would expect, he he was going to intercede on Israel's behalf before the throne room of sovereign God. And for three weeks, he tells us, he willingly forsook pleasant bread, you know, leavened bread, good, homemade Judy Loving's bread (laughs) with butter on it, (laughs) and uh, the dainties of life. And instead, he had a meager diet. I was thinking about how he really hadn't changed because when he was a teenager, he purposed in his heart that he wouldn't eat the king's meat, drink the king's wine. And what did he live on? Pulse and water, kind of boring, but he was healthy. Look how long he lived. <laughs> and he's still back to vegetables and water, apparently, here. And then it says, neither he says, neither did he anoint himself. Well, you know, ancient people did not have the luxury of a daily shower as you and I do. And they did not have access to a product known as deodorant. (laughs) So in between baths, they would anoint themselves with oil. It was good for the skin, and it helped to cover up the stink. So Daniel didn't. Daniel stinketh. (laughs) But I thought about how he he was not a man who was concerned about his outward man, his outward appearance. You know, he was way more concerned with uh, what was going on inside. You know, the inward spiritual sorrow just took over. 
and he didn't really care about the external. And I was thinking, well, I think one of your first questions on the homework is how he's an example to us because so many people in this world today put the body above the soul, don't they? And there's nothing wrong in taking care of the body. It's, you know, the temple for the Holy Spirit. But we're not going to, these bodies are going to die and decay. Well, they'll be glorified one day, but so many people make their body their God, don't they? They just overdo it. There's always needs to be a balance there. So Daniel's a good one to, except do take your daily shower. (laughs) And your deodorant. (laughs) Yeah, get some good oil if you don't take it. Well, after giving the year and then re-emphasizing his own identity, I'm Daniel, you know, Belteshazzar, same guy. Then he makes the, dis- uh, the declaration that the thing was true, the thing was true. And as I said, that word means message or the communication. The Holy Spirit knew of the future attacks that would come by these higher critics, you know, who would launch an attack, a full-fledged attack against Daniel's writings. And I told you from the beginning, no other book of the Bible except maybe the creation account in Genesis has been attacked as much as the book of Daniel. The Holy Spirit, being omniscient, knew all these attacks would come. So he inspires Daniel to reassure believers that this message that he's going to give here is not from a forgery Daniel writing of past events with the false intention of making them seem prophetic. This is the true Daniel writing true divine prophecy, true divine revelation. And that settles it for me. I believe that. It's true. Amen. That's the end of it. Well, the phrase, the time appointed was long, there in verse 1, I'm still in verse 1, <laughs> uh, means that the period of time concerning this prophecy, vision, revelation, whatever you want to call it, was going to be long, going to be a long time before it was fulfilled. Uh, the time appointed in Hebrew is one word, and it speaks of um, an appointed time of conflicts and struggles. It's going to be a long time of struggles for Israel. And given the fact that this revelation focuses on earthly conflicts and wars, king of the north and the king of the south, and then, uh, then the Antichrist and all these earthly conflicts, plus this last revelation also tells us about heavenly conflicts, spiritual warfare going on in the heavenlies. So this is very appropriate here, this, this interpretive meaning for this time appointed was long. Daniel vividly recalled, he he wrote this down in his calendar, I'm sure, this date, but I don't think he'd ever forget it in a million years anyway. He vividly remembered this day of his final revelation. It was, he tells us, the 24th day of the first month. Now, the first month on the Jewish calendar is Nisan. You've heard that before, right? Because the 14th of Nisan was the day they killed their Passover lambs, and that was the day that Jesus was crucified. Nisan is comparable to our late March, early April. So what month are we in? Nisan, right now. It was also the uh, month when they did celebrate at least three Jewish feasts. There was the Passover on the 14th, and there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which started the next day and went for a week. And then there was also the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was Sunday, the day the Lord resurrected. Unleavened bread was the day he was in the ground because he was unleavened. He had no sin, you know. But anyway, that's another story, but perfect. So these feasts, these, these feasts 
Um, and the first two, you know, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were memorial celebrations concerning Israel's miraculous deliverance from what nation? Egypt. So these feasts are on Daniel's mind because he's been celebrating them. No wonder he wasn't eating pleasant bread. He was eating unleavened bread because that's what you did at this time, you know, matzah. So uh, these feasts may have factored into his, his, his prayer and his fast here as his thoughts were very likely on that ancient, massive, happy exodus of his forefathers from Egypt under Moses. And yet, in stark contrast, he's thinking about how few Jews have left in a Babylonian exodus with Zerubbabel. You know, it should have been a million people like with Moses, but it's just a handful. Now, apparently, Daniel had taken time off from his official duties in the Persian court to observe the Jewish feast, or else he was retired by now. And we would, we would go along with that. I mean, that's perfectly okay if he's retired at 90. You agree? Yes. He could have been retired. Um, and some people say he was, and that's based on Daniel 1, verse 21. If you want to look at that, I won't get into the detail. But he could have been retired, or he could have been Um, just on vacation. Now, Josephus tells us, and I don't know if this is true or not, but Josephus says that he was held in such high esteem by the Medo-Persians that they built him a house on the Tigris River, which is where we find him right now. It says that he is by the side of the great river Hittichel, which is another name for the Tigris River. You know, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Well, at one point where the Tigris has a bend in, in the river, it's only about 20 miles from Babylon. So he's there. And guess what? This time he's not there carried in a vision by the Spirit. Remember in chapter 8, he was by the river Uli, which was over in Shushan. Um, but he wasn't really there, was he? He was carried there in a vision. Now we know he is physically present near this Tigris River. How do we know that? We know it because others are with him. There are other men with him who, who sense the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ, and that's in verse 7. We'll get to it in a minute. So this information about his geographical location tells us, guess what? Daniel did not return to Judah, did he? With the others, with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Where is Daniel? He's still in Babylon. Now, think about this. If the book of Daniel was a forgery, then don't you think that this fake Daniel would have made himself look good by placing himself back in Jerusalem with the godly faithful remnant with Zerubbabel and Judah? Don't you think? If you were writing a fake, wouldn't you make yourself the hero and put yourself there with the good guys instead of telling the truth that you're still there in Babylon? So that's another point to remember. Um, now, many, of course, have questioned why Daniel did not return with the others to Judah. And most commentators seem to think what I've already suggested to you, that he was far too old to make that trip. He may not have survived. Now, I think if he was probably even 80. Remember, wasn't he in his early 80s when he got thrown into the lion's den? He probably would have gone back even then. But maybe 90 was just, you know bit too risky but I I think that's part of the reason but I don't think it's the main reason he didn't go back 
he, I think he would have stayed in Babylon to be an encourager for other Jews to also return, you know, try to talk them into going back. I'm too old, but you need to go back. This is so important. I think that he would have remained because of his high position of respect in the Medo-Persian government, and that could be beneficial politically. You know, he could have an influence on Cyrus. Uh, He did have an influence on Darius, didn't he? He could have an influence um, and and help maintain uh, the court's favor toward his people, toward the Jews there in Babylon, and also toward the Jews that had gone back to Judah. Do you know there was a delegation of Samaritans and other enemies that actually went to Cyrus and tried to talk him into not allowing any more Jews to return, and even they tried to get him to tell the Jews that were there that they had to go back. And so Daniel needed to be there by the king's side, the emperor's side, to you know, be a, a positive influence for his people. I don't think there was anything that Daniel would have rather done than to gone back to his homeland. Do you? If, it was, if he was a selfish man, I am sure he would have had a caravan with cushions and everything, you know, especially for him, so he could go back and, and see his beloved homeland before he died and to be buried there. If he had done his own will, that's what he would have done, even being old. But he was not a man like that, was he? He never put his own interests first. He remained where he thought that God could use him the most, and that was to remain in Babylon. Well, let's look at his Christophany now, um, verses 5 to 7, the vision of Christ. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body was also like the burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. All right, apparently Daniel was praying because it says he lifted up his eyes. So his eyes, you know, he must have been on his knees and his eyes were closed and maybe he heard something. I don't know what attracted his attention, but suddenly he looks up and behold, you know, when you read behold, it means like, whoa, wow, there was a certain man in front of him. And the word certain means a single man, a man. You know, one man standing in front of him. And this man was more awesome and more majestic than anyone he had ever seen, to put it mildly. Daniel would never, ever, ever, ever forget. That's why he knew the date. He would never forget the vision of that man. And he gives us a description. He says his clothing was linen. I'm sure it was fine white linen. Linen. His belt that girded his robe was of the finest gold of Euphaz. Fine, 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 beautiful, shiny gold. His body was uh, as a dazzling gem known as beryl or chrysolite. It it was a transparent jewel that reflected, it would have reflected all the other colors of his person. It would have reflected the the fire color, you know, the red and the gold and and the, the brass. So it was just magnificent. If you can even try to imagine something like that, his body is just glowing with all these colors and it's transparent. And, um, and his, his face is like what? Lightning. His face was like lightning. I don't think you could see any features, could you? <laughs> and his eyes, 
flames of fire, his arms and his feet gleaming like polished brass, and then his voice when he spoke, it was like the rushing of Niagara Falls. You know, it's just like a mult. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? You can't even talk to the person standing next to you because the roar of the falling, it's just a multitude roar, a roar. Now, some think, some think that this man in linen here was an angel. Some think that. Others, like myself, believe that this was indeed a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ called a Christophany. And there are several reasons that I support this view. One is that Daniel, you know, had gotten kind of used to seeing an angel. I kind of laugh when I say that. Who could ever get used to seeing an angel? But the first time he saw Gabriel, remember what happened? He fainted. (laughs) He passed out. Thank you. I do need that. (laughs) Uh, It's the pollen or something. But um, the second time he saw Gabriel, he was in prayer, and Gabriel touched him, you know, and he looked up, and then Gabriel gave him the 70 weeks prophecy. He didn't pass out or anything, right? So he's getting kind of familiar with Gabriel here. (laughs) Uh, But um, in this case, this, when he sees this individual, he is absolutely, utterly overcome with fear in his presence. We'll read about that. I mean, he's just, he's wiped out. He's paralyzed. He, he falls flat on his face, and he has a hard time recovering. He has to be strengthened three times. Well, so that's one reason. I don't think this was just an angel. Also, this description of this person matches really well a description of the pre-incarnate Christ, who we know is the pre-incarnate Christ, that's given in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And it also matches very well the description that John gave in the book of Revelation when he saw the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another reason. And then this person, this man in linen, appears again in chapter 12, verse 7. And when he does appear that time, he swears a divine oath that only God could fulfill. So that's my reasons, and you're welcome to disagree with me if you think it's an angel. All right, now Daniel alone saw him, but his companions, whoever he's with, these other men he's with, they, they don't see this Christophany or this angel or whatever. They don't see it, but they sense something, don't they? They sense the presence of something magnificent. Just kind of like Saul of Tarsus' companions when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. And whatever he saw was so bright it blinded him, didn't it? The others didn't see or hear, but they knew something was going on. And they they left. These guys here... um, fled in quaking terror, and that's the word for like an earthquake. I mean, they're just shaken. And what do they do? They hide themselves. Isn't that typical of unsaved people? I'm assuming these were Babylonians. I'm not sure. But um, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, what did they want to do? Used to walk in the cool of the afternoon with with God. But then after they sinned, they wanted to ride and uh, ride and run. Hide and run and hide. Yes, and cover themselves with fig leaves. Um, and then I was thinking about the, the ones in uh, the book of Revelation. When they know all that the judgments coming down upon them are the wrath of the Lamb, yet instead of falling down and confessing, what do they do? They tried to run, they, again, 
run and hide. <laughs> Say it right this time. <laughs> um, so that's typical of unsaved people. They just want to hide. This 90-year-old man had seen a lot of amazing things from beyond the veil of this physical world over his years, hadn't he? He had a lot of privileges to see supernatural things. And yet this great vision literally robbed him of all of his physical strength. And he completely collapsed. Now the reason for this very special appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ to Daniel, I believe was to confirm to him that what, regardless of what may occur in the future, for Daniel's people and for, for Israel... And no matter how desperate things might get, and Daniel already knows they're going to be pretty bad from what he's already heard, but what we read about in 11 is, again, really bad news for the Jewish people and for the land of Israel. But Christ wanted Daniel to remember that God is still the all-glorious, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. So he gave him a glimpse of who he is. He would need to remember this. And the flaming eyes and the lightning face and the bronze feet, they all speak of majesty and power. And what else? Judgment. Judgment, right? You see, the prophetic events that are detailed in this final revelation about Israel's future would all be part of God's purging process, purging, pruning, and uh, chastening Israel. But in her latter days, he will judge her enemies, every one of her enemies. He will judge them once and for all. He will have used their evil for his ultimate good. He can take what man meant for evil and use it for his good. And what will be the good out of all of this for Israel? Her ultimate salvation, her national salvation when the Lord Jesus returns. So let's look at Daniel's collapse, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, I was left alone, because everybody else with him, you know, went running. (laughs) I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words, And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. In other words, he passed out. (laughs) When Daniel was left alone, because those with him had uh, left, the sight of that great vision left him completely overwhelmed. He says, no strength whatsoever in him. And then he gives this funny expression. I don't know if he did or the King James people did, but... His comeliness was turned into corruption. Don't you want to go out and use that to people? Just say, and what, wouldn't that impress them? My comeliness was turned into corruption. What in the world? You know what that means? He turned as white as a sheet. That's all it means. All the blood rushed out of his face. And he just, you know, white as a sheet. Um, he had no strength. He says that he repeats that. He retained no strength. And yet... He was able to hear the voice of this one's words. And the majestic volume, can imagine how loud it was, but the volume of the Lord's voice only further increased Daniel's terror, and he completely passed out. He says he was in a deep sleep with his face right on the ground. And it was while he was in this position of unconscious weakness 
that he receive supernatural strengthening, which he needed if he was going to receive this revelation. He had to be awake, didn't he, to receive the, the prophecies. So let's look now at the strengthening. First of all, I'm going to read the longest part of our uh, lesson this morning, verses 10 to 19. This is divine enlightenment. Start at verse 10. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. What kind of position is that? On all fours, right? On all fours. And he, the one who touched him, said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken these wor- this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people. Again, this is for the Jews, not the church. What's going to befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. It won't be fulfilled for many, many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. Not stupid, but speechless. (laughs) And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips... Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remain no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. He's pitiful, isn't he? He's pitiful here. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. And he said, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace, shalom, be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. All right, again, as back in Daniel 8, verse 18, and again in verse 21 of chapter 9, a hand reaches down. There's Daniel flat on his face, passed out. A hand reaches down to touch him in order to strengthen him, to lift him up, and to make him alert enough so that he can receive God's message. In this case, he's lifted up from a position flat on his face to um, be passed out, but now he's awake, but he's still not completely standing, is he? He does. His knees are, are, are trembling, quaking so much that he doesn't think You know, his old bony 90-year-old knees, he doesn't think he quite has the strength to stand up. So he's just there on all fours, unable to support his frame. So the one who lifts Daniel, I don't believe here now, I don't believe this is any longer the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. I believe now this one, after Daniel passed out, the one who touches him is an angel, perhaps Gabriel. Gabriel had touched him before. Um, and I say this for a couple of reasons. First of all, verse 11, he tells Daniel that he was sent with his message. You know, the task of angels is that they're messengers of God. 
If this had been Christ, he would have come as God with his own message. Secondly, he says that he came the minute Daniel started praying 21 days earlier. God heard his message and he sent an answer, just like he did in Daniel chapter 9, except he was delayed for 21 days. Now, do you think there's any being who could delay the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God? No. So I think this here it has to be an angel. And the angel calls Daniel a man greatly beloved, which is literally a man of preciousness. Remember, Gabriel had referred to him as that earlier, back in chapter 9, verse 23. And he does it again in verse 19. So three times Daniel got to hear that he was a man precious in the sight of God, that he was beloved by God. Why was he so precious to God? Well, because he pursued righteousness consistently throughout his life, didn't he? He was a man who just did not compromise on anything, um, even when there were much easier routes to take. You know, he could have closed those windows instead of praying out in the open and avoided being thrown in the lion's den, but that was not Daniel. This old prophet was beloved in heaven because he was sincere with God his whole life. And he mourned not only for the sins of his own people, but he mourned for his own sins. Because he so much knew the holiness of God, he saw how far short he fell from God's glory. Um, And as a prayer intercessor, he engaged in God's battle with evil. We find him praying so much of his, he spent three times a day, he spent a lot of his life in prayer, didn't he? What an example. He was used by God because he made himself available to God. You know it's that simple. I hear people say, well, I want to be used by God. All right. Make yourself available. Say, here am I, Lord. You know, when Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, what's the first thing he said? Lord, what would you have me to do? Here I am. Make myself available. It might be scary. He might take you out of your comfort zone. But if you want to be used by him, just be there. Say yes. <laughs> now, the angel, maybe Gabriel, gave Daniel two commands. He says he wanted him to understand the words that he would speak to him. And secondly, stand up. Stand up, old man, which Daniel did. He did. But it says he stood trembling. Seeing that he was still trembling, then the angel said, fear not. And he proceeded to tell Daniel that God had heard his words from the first day that he had set his heart to understand. See, Daniel was always seeking more understanding, wasn't he? Because he wanted more enlightenment, he got more enlightenment. So he was setting his heart. I want to understand. Why didn't more Jews go back? What does this mean for your overall plan, Lord? You know, I just, I want to understand. I want to still understand those other visions even better. So please give me more revelation. God heard that, sent this angel with a message. However, he was detained for 21 days by the prince of the um, kingdom of Persia. So the question is, who is this Persian prince? Well, let's look at it. Since no mortal, meaning a human being, can possibly withhold even one angel for one day, much less two angels for 21 days, this cannot be just a mortal being, a human, right? Can't. Um, Remember in the days of King Hezekiah, one angel, just one angel, Smote 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Angels are powerful. No person could withhold an angel um, for even one night. All right, so uh, we know that this isn't a mortal. Also, because of the fact that this 
Persian prince was trying to prevent a holy angel from fulfilling God's will, we know that this being was evil. He's against God's will. So he's not immortal and he's evil. Furthermore, because Michael is called chief prince, and he's also called Daniel's prince, and we know Michael is an angel of the princely rank, then we know that this being, because he's called a prince, is also an angel, an angelic created being. However, because he's evil, what does that mean? He's one of the fallen. He's one of the fall. He's a demon or an evil spirit, whatever you want to call him. He's an evil um, angel. He's one, one of the third part of the f- angels that fell with Lucifer when he rebelled against God. We also learn that this prince had been assigned to promoting an anti-Semitic influence in the minds of the various Persian kings. Because Persia was now the current Gentile empire of the world. Right? Medo-Persia, but by now the Persians were more dominant than the Medes. On three different occasions, Jesus referred to Satan as what? The prince of this world. And Paul referred to him as the prince of the power of the air. He stole dominion from Adam, didn't he? He usurped dominion over this earth and over the heavenly atmosphere way back then, and he has had dominion. He also has a kingdom. The kingdom of darkness and his kingdom is very well organized. You know, when God created all the angelic host, he created them with a hierarchy of positions. And in scripture, we know that they're called thrones and dominions, rulers, authorities, principalities, powers, strongholds. We know that there's archangels and there's seraphim and there's cherubim and there's zoan, which are living creatures. And there's kings, your Persian kings, kings and princes, all kinds. I mean, there's a whole hierarchy. And uh, that's, how, that's how Christ created them, and Satan maintained that same hierarchy with his fallen angels. So Daniel now, perhaps for the very first time, was learning from Gabriel that there is an unseen, ongoing spiritual warfare in the atmospheric heavens. I don't know if Daniel ever knew that before, but he certainly finds out here. Paul wrote about this truth, didn't he? Warning Christians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our warfare is with what? Principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. There is, do you believe that? There is a spiritual warfare. I mean, I believe there's evil men. I don't have any problem knowing there's evil men and women in this world. So what's the big deal to know that there's evil spirits too? The Persian prince of whom Gabriel spoke had dominion in the heavenlies at that time because below on earth, the Persians were the dominant power over the people of God, over the Jews, over Israel. In time, the prince of Greece, if you look ahead at verse 20, the prince of Greece, the fallen evil demon of Greece would take over because the Greeks would replace the Persians in the times of the Gentiles. So Daniel learned why an answer to his three-week fast and prayer had not come right away. You know, he had been used to getting answers to his prayers pretty quickly. When he went on that 10-day diet, only 10 days, and he looked great. 
much better than the other guys, right? He and his three companions. Remember when he needed that dream that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell anybody what it was? And if they didn't tell him, everybody's going to be chopped in little pieces. And he got that dream immediately after praying, didn't he? And then in Daniel 9, he's still in the middle of praying. He's still in his prayer when he gets the answer. So he's used to getting fast responses. So after three weeks, he must have thought, what's going on here? But he prevailed, didn't he? He kept on praying. But now he finds out why. You know, sometimes answers come to our, to our prayers. They come right away. They come directly. Even sometimes, maybe while you're in the middle, like that insect collection. I always think of that with my sister running out of the bathroom with my 10th insect. Um, but that came right away. I was still praying. Sometimes answers to prayer are direct and they're swift. Sometimes they're denied. Didn't Paul pray three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? God didn't remove it. He said, no, it's good for you. You need to be humbled, Paul. Sometimes answers are disguised. Have you ever had a prayer answered, but you didn't even recognize it as being answered right away? Uh, Like Paul, uh, I don't know if this is a real good example, but he wanted to go to Rome, and he prayed that he could go to Rome. When he did, it was in a prison ship. You know, he was a prisoner. Might not have been the way he had wanted it, but sometimes they're disguised. Sometimes they're direct. Sometimes they're um, denied. And sometimes they're disguised, and sometimes they're delayed. And that, that they may be purposely delayed, like when the Lord didn't go immediately to Lazarus. Why? Because there'd be more glory uh, for everyone if he waited four days. So sometimes they're delayed because it's the direct will of God. Other times they're delayed because there's this spiritual warfare going on. And the latter is the situation here in Daniel chapter 10. Now, God immediately had heard Daniel. I mean, he even knew what Daniel was going to pray about before Daniel prayed, didn't he? He knows what we have need of before we even ask. But um, so he immediately heard, but the delivery was delayed. And it was because this battle between Gabriel and the prince of Persia. In fact, this battle was so long and it was so fierce that Michael... Mighty Michael. I love Michael. He is called the chief prince. You know, he's the only one in the whole Bible who we know is an archangel. Some speculate Gabriel might have been, but it's never said that Gabriel is. But Michael is an archangel. You know, when that trump blows and there's a voice of an archangel, who do you think that might be? Michael? Oh, I don't know, but probably. Michael is a mighty angel, and he was sent to assist Gabriel. But even then, even then, this Persian prince was pretty strong. And I got to thinking about, you know, Persia is today modern-day Iran. That guy is still active up there, isn't he? Because Iran today is the number one sponsor of terrorism in the world. And they don't pull any punches about wanting to annihilate God's people, the Jews, and to wipe Israel off the face of the map and throw in all the Christians while they're at it. So he's very much active. Uh, anyway, so even with Michael in the battle, Gabriel, all he was able to do was slip through the evil forces and that warfare to get down to Daniel to give him his message. But then he tells Daniel, I got to return to the battle. And, when, and, and after I've done with that battle, I'll be fighting the prince of Greece. He tells him that in verse 20. So the message that Gabriel brings is a revelation that will help Daniel understand what would befall his people in the latter days. And that, again, is just the latter days, all right? The hindermost part is what it means in Hebrew, speaking about the end times 
And um, he says the vision won't be for many days because it won't be completely fulfilled until really the second coming. Well, after, after hearing Gabriel, he turns, Daniel turns his face toward the ground. I don't think he passes out this time because it doesn't say a deep sleep, but he just down on the ground again and he's totally speechless. He can't talk. He's overwhelmed not only by the great vision that he had seen of the pre-incarnate Christ. He's also overwhelmed by Gabriel's announcement that he would be hearing more news about Israel's future, which didn't probably excite him too much because what he'd already heard was always bad news. You know, until the very end, it was good. But in between, and he was probably hoping when the Jews went back, you know, it wouldn't be long and there would be the kingdom, that the Messiah would come and the kingdom, etc. And he, all he does is keep hearing about all these years and years and years of more persecution and troubles. And so that he's overwhelmed by that. Furthermore, he's probably overwhelmed about this spiritual warfare that's going on that maybe he had never known about. And so he's just totally speechless. But again, he's strengthened because the next thing we know, the next thing he knew, one who resembled uh, a man, touched him on the lips. Now, I don't know if this is still the same angel, if this is another angel. It gets really confusing here, but another angel or the same one touches him on the lips, and he's able to speak again. And then he, he tells this being who touched him on the lips, poor Daniel, you know, he says, he says that vision, the vi- that great vision of my glorious visitor has just left me in anguish so that I have no strength. I don't know about anguish, but I just have no strength in me. I'm just, I'm a wreck. <laughs> I'm not only old, you know, but I just can't handle this in my weakened state after three weeks of fasting. <laughs> Why didn't you do it at the beginning of the fast, you know? Uh, and then he, so he asked his benefactor, how such a servant as him, how can, can I, a servant of the Lord, a mere human being, speak to you, another servant of the Lord, but from the supernatural word, world, you know, how, how is this? <laughs> how I can talk to you and then he confesses again that he has absolutely no strength not even any breath left him in him so once more uh one appears in the appearance of a man and touches Daniel to give him strength and uh he speaks and he gives Daniel some reassuring words he tells him again that he's greatly beloved in other words you don't have anything to fear Daniel don't you know who you are in the sight of God Stop being so overcome. God loves you. He's not going to hurt you. Fear not, he says. And then he says, shalom, peace. You don't need to be upset. You have peace in your heart. And then it's kind of like he's reprimanding him because he says, be strong and be strong. Get yourself together. Pull yourself together, Daniel. Get that old Daniel, you know, that old resolve spirit. Be courageous. The word courageous is included in that meaning. Be strong and be courageous. And as soon as the angel spoke those words, Daniel got his act together. He pulled himself together. His strength returned. His inner strength returned. And he resolved that he was going to trust God no matter what. And so he's ready. Finally, he's ready to hear the message. And with that invitation, well, he says, Lord, um, speak, for thou hast strengthened me. So now that Gabriel or whoever it is is going to begin his message to Daniel, which he prefaces very quickly, we'll end with this, about he gives him a little bit more information about the spiritual warfare. So let's look real quickly at verses 20 to 11.1. Then said he, knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? 
And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grisha shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? Uh, Before getting to his message, the angel tells Daniel that he's got to return, as we talked about, to the fight with this prince of Persia. Later on, he would be engaged in a fight with the prince of Greece because these are the two kingdoms that are going to be involved in the prophecies that we are going to read about in this final revelation. But basically what Daniel is learning is that behind the scenes of world history, behind all the battles and warfares that go on on earth, there is an unseen, ongoing spiritual warfare between evil and good. Right? And let me ask you a question. Which is, which is stronger, holiness or evil? Which is stronger? Which is more powerful, light or darkness? light which is more um powerful truth or lies truth always and don't forget that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world we do not need to fear the evil forces of this life you know put your spiritual armor on and say get thee behind me satan Gabriel had been given great responsibility in the sovereign work of God. Actually, I guess there's no other created being who holdeth with him except for Michael. That means Michael is more powerful than Gabriel, but Gabriel is also mighty powerful. But Michael... Then Gabriel goes on to say, is Daniel's prince. He says, your prince. But you know what's interesting about that word, your? It's not just Daniel's guardian angel. Your is given in the plural. So who is Michael? He is Israel's prince. And he is one powerful angel. Just think of how he has protected God's people over these years. And he'll be very active in the tribulation. But I love Michael. It would be interesting to do a study on Michael. Anyway, in the first verse of chapter 11, the angel tells Daniel that he stood next to Darius the Mede in the first year of his reign over Babylon to confirm and to strengthen him. And the word stood there, okay, this is Gabriel saying, I stood by Darius. I stood is given in a military sense, like he's guardian angel. He's standing there over Darius, um, and this, the, remember, the world power had just transitioned from Babylon to Medo-Persia. So Gabriel is standing watch over Darius to turn the new kingdom from hostility to the Jews to favor with the Jews. It's like a guardian angel over the rulers. You think Trump has a guardian angel over him trying to direct influence, trying to influence decisions? And well, what's interesting is that the pronoun him can also refer to Michael in verse 1, where it says, stood over him. So it can refer to Darius the Mede and to Michael. So it looks like both Gabriel and Michael were standing watch over Darius. Why was that important in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede? Well, do you remember those other presidents and the princes, the 120 princes, and how they manipulated Darius? 
They had evil forces working with them, this prince of Persia, to get them to influence him to turn against the Jews. If they were successful in killing Daniel, then they remember they made him write a decree that no one could petition anybody but Darius. No one could pray to any other god but him. And uh, Daniel was faithful and kept on praying to God. But if they had been successful in getting rid of Daniel, they would have gone out and tried to do it with all, all the Jewish people. So, anyway, there's influences going on. Remember what happened? They did throw Daniel in the lion's den, but who shut the mouths of the lions? An angel. Which one do you think it was? <laughs> Could have been Michael, his prince. I don't know. Anyway, there is a spiritual warfare going on. But here's the thing in closing. You know, Daniel, when he went to prayer, he wasn't praying about angelic warfare. I know people can get caught up in praying down strongholds and, you know, praying about this angel and that angel and, Lord, hold the angels back. And you can get caught, and there are movements about all that, um, spiritual warfare, that sort of stuff. But Daniel didn't pray about that, did he? He didn't even really know about it. He prayed about matters that he knew were God's will. And we, too, should do our prayer wrestling about matters that we know are God's will. And leave it to God as to how he is going to work things out, how he's going to accomplish his work and his will. If he chooses to use angels, and we know he does, but that, that's his business, isn't it? That's his business. When we go to prayer, we are not to pray about territorial spirit beings. We are to pray in the power of the one we do know, the one in us who is greater than he who is in the world. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to say that in closing. Because there's books that can be misleading. You know, Frank Peretti's Piercing the Darkness and all that kind of stuff. You can't get your doctrine from novels. All right, let's pray. Father, we know um, that when Daniel began to pray, he had absolutely no idea that he was triggering a spiritual warfare and that truly he himself had entered into this unseen combat through the power of his prayers. And for three weeks, the messenger from you could not get through. But Daniel persevered. He didn't know why his prayer was not being answered, but he prevailed. He kept on praying. So thank you, Lord, for the lessons we have learned this morning that unanswered prayer does not imply that you don't hear, but sometimes unanswered prayer can directly be attributed to satanic influence. So knowing this, may we realize even more the need for perseverance in our prayer lives. And Father, we just thank you so much for the patience of your people. I know I've gone over time, but thank you for this lesson on spiritual warfare and again, the wonderful example that Daniel sets before us. I ask now that you would give us all a wonderful resurrection season, that we would be a testimony and tell people, remind people, it's not about Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and all that foolishness, but it's about the resurrection of the Son of God. Mm, wonderful. Most wonderful event that ever happened. And, and please, in three weeks, bring us all back safely. For we ask these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.